When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, thank you so much for coming along today. It's such a beautiful rainy day. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to be here in Jotunio. Yeah, if anyone is confused, I'm Pater, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I was just really delighted to get a chance to come to come here today and to talk about translations by Brian Friel. It's something we've wanted to talk about for a while. We make a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland, and nothing really gets to the heart of it, quite like this plague. But also, um, when translations was first brought, uh, was first staged in 1981, the um, Friel had already been a very successful playwright. He had produced shows in, in the West End and Broadway all around the world, but he decided for this particular play what had to happen. It wasn't going to be a play about Northern Irish people to be watched by people from elsewhere. It was, it was, it was a piece of, it was made for its own community. And it was made right in the city where, where differences in naming, differences in language were at their most urgent in Derry, Londonderry, as some people call Londonderry. it. And specifically held not in the theatre but in the guild hall, where, where it's, I guess some of those decisions were, were most urgently made. Yeah, the the place you hold something, the place you you, you decide to premiere something, or, or in our case, talk about something, is quite important. So when you said we were going to talk about translations and going to explore place names and mm-hmm. all that, I thought, great, we're going to somewhere where the place name is deep and mysterious. Mm-hmm. And you said, no, we're going to Newbridge. <laughs> it's named after a bridge. That, that was, was new, new once. At one stage. <laughs> in 1203, actually, I found out. Mm-hmm. Um, never tell me I didn't do my research. Um, but yeah, translations, the fact that it was first held in Derry, it's about, it's kind of a movable feast about where the mystical village of Ballybeg or on Vallybyog uh, in the play is. So uh, is, it, is it in Donegal? Is it in Derry? Is it in the north? Is it in the Republic? You know, who cares? It's a really, really... It's an everywhere, uh, in the same way that some characters can be in every man or in every woman. And mm-hmm. I think there's a bit of Balyabyog everywhere in the country because everywhere in the country has seen this. You know, we're going to come in and we're going to rename your your gaff. We're going to tell you what it's called from now on, and that's that. I think it's something that a lot of Irish playwrights have picked up on as well. Mm. Um, when we think about authors like Brian um, Nulon, Flann O'Brien, he picked up on the Kirche Dorcha, the whole this place that where is this place we always want to kind of tie it down to somewhere but maybe it's better if we don't and we we reflect what we want onto the place and I think Tom Murphy as well you know there's a few other ones that come out Balogangora all those things that we just maybe even for those people who don't speak Irish they're fascinated by the place names because as Irish people we are obsessed with ourselves and we are obsessed with this sense of belonging and who we are and where we come from and I think especially for those who don't speak Irish because I think sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between the place and us and the, the names give us so much information that people actually adore it and I think mm. Brian Friel really 
tapped into that very quickly and realised that place is so important, especially for a man who was born in Tyrone, uh, one of the occupied six counties, and then moved to Donegal. I think he really, really grasped that sense of, well, where is my home and what does home mean and what does a place mean? Mm. And one of the few authors to ever get it wrong was Kevin Barry, who wrote this brilliant, brilliant novel called City of Bohan. Amazing. And you're reading it and you're just going, oh, you mean Galway? It's just Galway, like, <laughs> why didn't you say Galway? <laughs> no, it's Galway, like, yeah. Mm. It's great book, though. Great book. But even uh, Friel's movement from, from Tyrone to Donegal was, was technically a, uh, a moving south, even though he was really moving west. And how that some of the, even those very names like North and Republic and, and South in the actual, in the language oh, itself. Oh, Southern Ireland. Southern, Southern Ireland, yeah. I love the Southern Irish accent. Apparently the Southern Irish accent is the sexiest accent in these islands. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? Well, I mean, to be fair, like, it stretches. There's only one. It stretches from Mallinhead to Mizzenhead and from Ackle to Dublin. So it's <laughs> kind of, it don't want to be sexy. It covers such a, a broad space. One accent, that's all we have. Mm-hmm. Thanks a million. The Brits, never not at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... How many people have seen translations of production? I think that's a few. I think that we we can't tell. If you've seen translations, say it. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Ah, okay. a few, thanks. So it's, and how many people have read it but not seen it? Yeah. Okay, a few, few more. Times. So it's, um, as many of you have been familiar with, it deals with the Ordnance Survey of Ireland or, and when the, when the British surveyors arrive in a small Irish town in the 1830s. So the Ordnance Survey it struck that I've decided because some of the issues and Brian Tran- translations is such a such a popular. It's one of Friel's most widely produced plays outside of Ireland because it, it's, I guess so, so many of the themes are so resonant to the cultures. And the one of the things was the Ordnance Survey started in Scotland. We were talking about this earlier, better, and after the Jacobite Rebellion, and the idea was the mapping was effectively a way of making sure that things could be controlled, that it couldn't be invaded or attacked. Or, or, and, or that people couldn't, rebels couldn't hide terribly easily. And then the next iteration of it was the, um, was the Survey of India. And again, similar things to what, what, happened, what would happen in Ireland there, where you would have um, names in local languages would have been phoneticized to an English, an English mm-hmm. palette. And some of, the, some of which has been reversed in the past 15, yeah, but 20 years. it's only reversed very, very recently. It's only very, very recently that sort of the, the practice has reached us that it's no longer Calcutta, it's Kolkata. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer Madras, it's, it's Chennai. Uh, and uh, not Bombay, but Mumbai. And mm-hmm. so many other cities that we, you know, would never even, would never even reach our sort of radar. But uh, it's just amazing that for so many hundreds of years, we just sort of took it as red. Oh, yeah, yeah, Calcutta, that's, that's, what, that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so long after independence, 70, 70 years after independence, India's saying, actually, you know what, that's, that's not it. And that, that kind of happened in some places in Ireland. Uh, we, we did that as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I know that we'll get a chance to explore place names and the history of place names, but like that, the act of renaming mm-hmm. It's such a colonial act, even perhaps more so than the invasion or the violence. This is this is leaving your your, your mark. Yeah. It's permanency. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's such a sign of power that you can leave something behind you, even when they did leave and we got rid of them. They left behind this heritage of we changed you, and this is irreparable. And still, to a lot of people, Dunlira is still Dunlira, and it never got changed to anything else. But there's something about that that you can actually hold on to something. And people, some people still call it Kingstown. Um, Who are those people? I know. <laughs> the, the same with I think, they would have to be the second generation of Shonians at this stage. Like, 
I know, I do know. I work with a woman mm. who still calls Houston Station Kings Bridge Station, but that's a more recent change. That was was changed in the fifties, and this woman is is older than that. She's in her eighties, so I mean, mm. I can I can see why. Mm. But I mean, God, if anyone's still calling it Kingstown or still calling Leash Queens County, um, yeah, they're, you want to ask questions. They're <laughs> deep, deeply, deeply committed to the cause. <laughs> Sound like they're deeply, deeply undercover. They an MI six or something. Mm. But I know this, uh, I've, I've, this came up recently that obviously Bollywood is named for Bombay Hollywood, but we, when Bombay became Mumbai, it was renamed Mumbai, they didn't change the name for Bollywood at all. To Mollywood? No, it didn't work, because <laughs> that, that would make sound like a, a party town. It wouldn't make it sound like, like Molly Malone's equivalent of Dolly Parton's uh, theme <laughs> yeah. park. Theme park. Which is, which is Dublin. <laughs> Molly Malone's theme park was, was Dublin, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So, translations. <laughs> so, you know, getting back to the, so the, 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 the precincts were obviously there, um, there have been British colonial activity all over the world, but the examples in Australia and America were just were, were, were treating those territories as, as blank slates. But in India and in Ireland and in Scotland, the, the mission was more to find the, the, those existing towns and territories, but that they, to find names that were familiar, but to, uh, to name them to an English palette, but, but also to, to correct the meaning almost mm-hmm. to change. And, so, somewhat changed the meaning, and that this is done carelessly and with uh, and overriding the uh, a legacy of what those what the names actually represented. And this was uh, what and the, the existing terminology for names and places went back centuries now. And there's the Dinhanicus. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, yeah. Dinhanicus is the study the the lore of place names in in the ancient Irish tradition. And I think what Friel does is he manages to sort of wave a hand at least, a hand wave towards the Dinhanicus to say, listen, there it is, it is there. But what he really captures is just how beautifully the Ordnance Survey ignored it. And how uh, really what's, what's not important is why this is called that. But quite simply, what is it? And we, we, which is why you end up with like Bun Byug being renamed Bunbeg instead of Little Bottom. Uh, you know, which is why mm. you end up, which would have been a literal translation, and, a, and a, you know, and and I think Friel does that beautifully through the characters of the captain and, and Lieutenant uh, Yolland in the in the in, in the the play, uh, how they just simply do not care what it means. Mm. Just what is it? We're going to anglicise it. We'll jot it down, and that's it. And while Friel is doing it with, uh, you know, there's definitely a glint in his eye. It's satirical. Uh, it really was, in many cases, as simple as that—a captain of engineers or something, which is not a very high rank. Like, if you joined the army, if you became a cadet, now uh, you'd be a captain within seven years. So it's not a very, very senior rank, and yet they were charged with just go out there, ignore the natives, and uh, gives a name for mm-hmm. all the places in this county, in this area. So it's—I uh, think Friel touches on that quite well, and I think his his portrayal of the Royal Corps of Engineers in it—it it is even-handed. It's fair, but it definitely reflects. The absolute lack of respect for the Din Hanachas, the lore of place names, and and unfortunately, it means that we've lost a lot of meanings. We just uh, and I think uh, we've lost a lot of the respect that we have for place names because I see in Dublin, and we're all watching it all over the country. These houses popping up all over the place and developments, and they're called like Blossom Hill. I'm like, who in Ireland yeah. calls something Blossom Hill? Like. That, what does that mean? It doesn't connect. There are no blossoms. Where's the hill? <laughs> they just pick a name that means nothing, that it doesn't relate to anything to do with the land or the culture or the people and just say, that'd look good on the side of a hoarding, wouldn't it? I'll just put that there. Blossom Hill. Yeah, this is where stylish people come to live. And you're like, what? Like, 
we are not a stylish people. <laughs> a, oh, that, 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 that complex, the, the uh, expression of elegance, refined, or that is called. But there's a Charlesland uh, Downs or, or Close in, I think, a near West Farnham or Ballantyre. And I was like, who's Charles? Yeah. Where's Land? Yeah. What's Close? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is a, this is a thing. And the, obviously, the, the renaming is renaming is continued. And but and long, long past, I think, in the, when the when the Republic came into being, a lot of places were renamed, sometimes without context, but we can get onto that afterwards. But in terms of the actual the text itself, uh, the, the, the opening uh, production of, uh, of translations featured uh, Ray McAnally and Stephen Ray, who was the co-founder of Field Day, but also included a young Liam Neeson. Uh, a young Liam Neeson in, in one of his earlier roles before he became mad famous as someone that even horses recognize. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's no horses recognize him there. <laughs> no, no, this is pre-equine recognition, Le- Neeson. Uh, although he did have a, a certain set of unique skills. Uh, <laughs> but also, 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 the original production not only had Liam Neeson and Stephen Ray and Ray McNally, but it had a very young, uh, shockingly handsome Mick Lally, mm-hmm. Miley from Glen Row. I'm not even sure if you get that reference, guys. Glen mm-hmm. Row. Glen Row was bath time, nearly bedtime on a Sunday mm-hmm. evening. Like, but Miley from Glen Row was. Very, very young in this as he played uh, Manus uh, in it. But uh, yeah, a wonderful cast. And I've seen it myself twice in recent years. I've seen it in the Abbey, a gorgeous job, an absolutely fantastic job. And I saw it in uh, New York on Broadway, directed by Gary Hines, where um, Niall Boogie played the, the main character of Hugh, the schoolmaster. Yes. I don't know if you remember Niall Boogie. You might not know Niall Boogie when you hear that name, but you might have heard the name Henry Sellers from Father Ted. <laughs> from the episode with the, the talent show. Uh, Famous oh yeah, 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 yeah. So the problem was at the end of translations, there's this wonderful closing scene where Hugh, the schoolmaster, is talking about the fall of a Greek city and how the goddess had wanted it to be a capital of all nations. And he's drawing these wonderful corollaries between the Irish language and culture and, and what ancient Greece once stood for and how we try and preserve the language of Greece and Rome but we don't try and preserve our own. And all I can hear is, sack me, I made the BBC. (laughs) Uh, So the casting was interesting, uh, (laughs) but it was nice to see it on Broadway. Unfortunately, it only lasted two weeks. I went to see it in its first week. It was on holiday over there. Uh, And then it shut down a little over a week later and the the Variety, the the showbiz magazine over there, said it had too much moral fibre for the American diet. Oh, (laughs) jeez. So. Well, we know how they treated their own place names yeah. and their own people, so <laughs> I don't think that's that surprising. Yeah, that was that was the other thing. You did you did mention this as well that when when the the Royal Ordnance Survey, when the Ordnance Survey of, of, of Great Britain, uh, when it did go to places like Australia and America, it was treating them as a terra nova, mm. and they could name it whatever they wanted, which mm-hmm. is why they came up with the brilliantly original idea of naming it after towns that they'd already heard of. Uh, which is why you, and you, you just stuck a new in front of it sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. That's why you got New York and New Jersey. And then sometimes it didn't even bother, which is how you ended up with Rochester and, uh, you know, and uh, Boston. And yeah. yeah, and also they were incredibly unoriginal. Yes. Like there's over a dozen Springfields <coughs> in America. That's why when Matt Groening was writing The Simpsons, he picked Springfield as a name because it's the most common name, not only of state capitals, but of towns in America. There's a Springfield, Massachusetts. There's a Springfield, New York. There's one in Kentucky. There's one in um, Colorado. There's Montana. There's Springfield everywhere. Uh, so deeply, deeply unoriginal. That was the, 
17th century version of Charlestown Muse or whatever is like a real <laughs> aspirational place naming. We shall call it Springfield because in spring the fields, yeah, the spring, they all bloom in spring. That's what fields do. I think the same can be said for, for old Irish names as well. There's so many Shanawala, Balaburg, and Bunburg. You know, we, they weren't necessarily original either, but they were very much rooted in what they were and what the people were around and what was growing around and what was happening in, in the country at the time. So I think as we look back on, on names, you start to find out more about where you're actually from the more you read into place names. And that's something that Friel really taps into, like, who are we? Do we have this border or do we not? And do we stand by this border? I think that's something that you know, we start to think about again now with Brexit coming up and Stephen Ray's amazing video about what a border actually is when you're living beside a border. And I'm from Dundalk on the border. So you know, the border, we call it the border in our minds because you know, we can't actually see it, but it makes a massive difference to our lives. Um, people speak differently across the border. We speak about different things. We sometimes understand each other and sometimes don't because there's a dual identity there. So I think he really taps into what's actually going on with language, what's actually going on with places. And the character of Sarah, who at the, at the beginning is, um, I think one of the characters calls her, that she was seen as dumb. So she, she can't speak, but actually the more they speak to her, the more they get out of her. And she is omnipresent in the play, but she just sits there. And it's a really powerful piece of drama to just have something there all the time, maybe not seeing anything, but just watching on. And I think that's really smart as well. I love that bit of it. Yeah, she's got a real sort of ghostly Kathleen Nihulahan vibe mm. to her, like the spirit of Ireland, just there, constantly present. And you can address her, you can speak to her, but there's nothing in return until, mm. as the play reaches its denouement, you start to realise, oh, there's hidden depths here, mm. and this is a very, very well-crafted character. I've seen it played well, and I've seen it played poorly, and it's, um, it's a really, really powerful role. And it's really, really tough for an actor to have to, I mean, not, able, not being able to use any words to carry the character. Mm. That's very, very tough. So when, it, when it's played well, it's, it's, it's brilliant. But the play is full of, of lovely little things like that, including there's one gorgeous scene that, um, is it fair to say Love actually ripped it off wholesale? I'd say substantially. I think probably when people remember productions of translations, they almost they significantly remember the, the scenes between Yolland and Moira, uh, the British sol young British soldier and the Irish girl, and the, how they interact and how they don't speak the same language, but they start falling for each other. And I think this is probably one of the most popular scenes in, in recent, I guess, in, in Irish theatre in the past uh, 34, 40 years. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the real joy of it is that they're saying exactly the same thing or close to it. Like, you know, oh, you, um, the grass is wet, your feet must be soaking. Mm. Oh, your feet are soaking, the grass must be wet. Mm. And <laughs> because the whole play is produced in English, and yet we know which characters are speaking Irish and which characters are speaking English and when. We have this insight that they don't. So we sort of look on it as the all-seeing eye and looking at them fail to communicate while they're very, very obviously being very attracted to each other and unable to, to vocalise that, to verbalise it, to say it. And like I said, like many things, I've seen it done well in Dublin, in the Abbey. The last time I saw it, it was done beautifully. It was amazing. The crowd were just in tears. They were just like, go on. Just kiss her. No, she, but she does fancy. She likes you she too. Said it. She likes you too. <laughs> and then I saw it done in the States uh, on Broadway and it was just played for laughs. Yeah. And it's just such a gorgeous scene. And it is so funny. But in it, it's incidentally funny. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it's, it's, you don't need to leave the pause for 
pause for laughter or the, the kind and, of laughter. And it's track. something that I think when I think about that scene, I think of well, actually that probably did happen in some manner of ways. When you think of people living on the Blaskets around the Iron Islands, maybe specifically in the Blaskets, they used to come in to Dingle and you know do whatever they had to do, but. A lot of them didn't speak any English. People in Dingle did speak English. So imagine meeting somebody and really fancying them and them speaking a different language, but being in the same country and being from the same place, same jurisdiction, but you're out on this island. And it's just, a, it works, but it doesn't work. And it must be this challenge and this tension between, well, what is going on in this country and linguistically and socially as well? Like, who are we and what's happening? And why are you speaking one language and I'm speaking another? And how maybe personality and how power can get through the, the language barrier. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and there is something raw to it as well. Because they couldn't communicate, he doesn't really know if she's a nice person or would they get on. And she doesn't know really. He seems kind, but mm. she doesn't know. So there is, it's kind of just raw sexuality, just mm. attraction bubbling up to the surface. And, mm. and they're kind of like, I really hope this guy is not a total arse. <laughs> like, you know, because I fancy the pants off of him. Like, <laughs> But it does that the scene also, as someone who can return to Irish later in life, that scene does speak in another way that sometimes people find Irish intoxicating and beautiful and the process of actually getting knuckling down and learning it and getting to grips with those grammatical forms. The idea is, will I still like it if it's not exotic and strange to me anymore? Mm. And this is something that a lot of language speakers, particularly who have self, self-motivated language speakers, do have to come to terms with. And I'd yeah, it's, it's like an it. exotic othering of yeah, another language. Exactly. Like, I love it from afar, but <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily see, want to deal with it. You see, in Irish, we don't say, I love you. We say, <laughs> and we'll dulgity and letters. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> but there is an othering, and it does happen in this country. Um, say, if you're in town in Dublin on the phone speaking Irish, in your own country, in which it's the first language of the state, and your own people are turning around and looking at you like you may have seven heads and you're like, what is your problem? Like, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you're the weirdo and you're like, oh, really, what's happening? And it does happen. And I think he picks up on that, this othering of language and the power play, the dynamic between English and Irish and where it came from. So I still think it really works. And it, it especially works for me when I think about it, when I was rereading it um, in the context of Brexit. I just can't stop thinking about how you could use Brexit to redo this play and say, well, what now? Where are mm -hmm. we going now with language, with funding, with culture, with who we are? And, and what does happen now? <laughs> well, the end of the play is an immediate fade to black. And <laughs> I, I think that's, that's entirely appropriate <laughs> for the Brexit. Big metaphor. flashy lights Brexit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gone. It is, but and I've mentioned this before on the show and in, in the latest book that one of the things about Brexit is that after Britain, the United Kingdom leaves, the Republic of Ireland will be the custodian of the of English as, as of European Union English, as being the largest English language state. And while it, and English will be a second language in lots of places, or a language of business in lots mm -hmm. of places, Ireland will be the place where it is most widely spoken. It'll be setting the tone for what user what, <laughs> what words are used. And we always spoke it better, boy. <laughs> this is the this is the thing, and it's uh, it's it's a, it's a strange. It's a strange burden that we haven't we haven't been asked. We we didn't it's, it's it's an argument that's that's being used by um, people who are opposed to funding of the Irish language and opposed to the Irish language existing in Europe as as a as a, as a, a working language or as a treaty language. And they're saying like, when Brexit happens, we'll have to we'll have to stop speaking Irish, lads. We have to save English. We have to do we have to save English. Like English can never leave the European Union. It can never leave the European Union. And it's largely because and this is an alien concept to the Irish and to the British. 
on the mainland continent of Europe, they speak more than one language each. Mm. Like it's just mm-hmm. so a lot of them speak English, and they're kind of going like, you know, we've a vested interest because English is taught in almost every school in the Netherlands. So they're sort of going like, mm. no, our, our people prefer learning English to German or French, so we would like to to, mm. to keep it in and and never like don't forget poor little Malta. They've yeah. got a they've got the fly the flag for the <laughs> the English language as well and mm. Cyprus half of it. Oh yeah, Cyprus. Maybe familiar with some of the issues we discussed in this play. <laughs> but, so the, the, one of the things I suppose gets us some of the examples that are used in translations of places, places where I kind of a, the, the new English name confers a slightly different meaning almost. And I'm always reminded of Inish Free, um, obviously the eighth poem by Inish Free and how you know, the, the significance of free being at the end wasn't actually intentional, mm. uh, but it's, it's often taken that way by readers, from, readers of that poem from different countries. And that's the example that the most famous examples in translations is Burnfoot. Mm, yeah, Burnfoot, which is Bunhau, uh, or you know, if they were to translate it literally, it would have been Riverbottom, mm. which I think would be a lovely, <laughs> lovely name for a little town in Donegal, a little village called Riverbottom. Uh, but no, Burnfoot, they they, they went for, um, and again, like burn being the Scots word, foot, an alternate, but uh, it's. One of the key things is that this play has been sort of, it's travelled well, as you mentioned at the mm-hmm. offset there, and it's because almost every country has gone through this process. Mm-hmm. Almost every country, every country that was ever conquered Colonized, by a colonial yeah. power has certainly gone through this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a universal, and this idea that somebody's going to come in and tell you what this place is called, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. it from now on, this is what you're, go- you're going to call it. And uh, look, it's nothing new, mm-hmm. and, and we'd be, it would be remiss of us to say that it's just the Ordnance Survey of 1830 that did this because, you know, is it Balliaclea or is it Dove Lynn or mm. is it Difflin or is it Difflin or Skiri or is it Dublin? Uh, you know, the, even our capital has had so many different names. And eventually, at some stage, somebody came here in 1203 and said, See that new bridge? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're calling see, this place. See how new it is. See how new it is. It's going to be new forever now. Yeah. <laughs> no. mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that does happen. But there's. Um, are there any other? Um, there's some other uh, examples, I suppose, um, of when. And sometimes when you are a train, you can hear the English name and the Irish name. And they sound a little bit similar. And then sometimes you get some, or if you're driving through the country and you see road signs, you see sometimes they don't. The, the, the Irish doesn't exactly match. And I think horse and jockey is one of the examples. It's one of the, <laughs> the best loved town names going through with an Irish. It's probably recently. Yeah. It's on Markuk, uh, which Markuk. just means jockey. Now, it's one of the few place names in the country that went the other way around because the place is named after an inn, the Horse and Jockey Inn. Uh, and by the time we got around to translating it into Irish, uh, as soon said earlier, the horse had bolted. Um, <laughs> so it's just on Markok. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there's, there's plenty of places like that around that were sort of went the other way around where things were like, the, the most famous one that springs to mind is the Red Cow, mm. um, which is if you follow the, the Nace Road all the way into Dublin, you come to what used to be the Red Cow Roundabout, or affectionately known as the Mad Cow Roundabout, uh, <laughs> and it's now just the Red Cow Interchange, and it was named after a farm and later an inn that was there. So Tipalon na Baderige, Tipalon and Voyarag. And when you're an Irish speaker and you're going through the country looking at signposts, 
nothing enrages you more is when they, the Irish is not only badly translated, but also has random letters in it that make no sense. And I've just literally <laughs> been fired in like salt and pepper. And you're like, why though? Why is that either? That makes no sense. Did somebody sneeze a bunch of fathers? Yeah, this, honestly, like? I think they ring people in local county councils and go, any idea how you might spell this? No, me neither. Okay, I'll just put an IE in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I've often been on the phone to Loud County Council. I'd say they're like, not this one again. <laughs> but like, I'm from a road called the Red Barns Road. And that is a bit of a, a difficult translation because of the genitive of an adjective, which I won't get into because I'm not no, a pedant. No, we're all here for the I'm grammar. I'm not a pedant. I am not we're a pedant. We're all here for the grammar. But they literally changed it three times and three times it was wrong. I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the best example I know in my locality is just down the road from me uh, in a place in Lucan, County Dublin. I'm from Clondalkin in West County Dublin and there's a place called Adamstown in mm. Lucan. Relatively new development but an old townland called Adamstown. And there are four signposts to Adamstown on the four sides of it depending on what road you're coming from. So if you're coming out of town it says uh, Balia Vic Adam, which would be kind of accurate. It would be the, the town of the person with the surname Adam. And then on the other side, coming in, uh, it's, uh, if you're coming from Newbridge, for example, or driving in from, from North Kildare, you, you would see um, Balia Adam. Which, okay, right, that's another way of saying it, potentially. Yeah, okay, mm. Balia Adam. And then if you come down from the north towards Adamstown, it says uh, Balia Vigodov. Okay, that's a third way of saying <laughs> the surname. Uh, and I'm saying, yeah, that's great. And if you come up from the south, it's My Arnie which is the Irish for Adamstown County Wexford. So yeah. that's that one, they just got it wrong, but nobody Harder. really knows. Do you not know, when you're, coming from the, when you're coming from the north, it's the Ulster Irish version, when you're coming from the <laughs> south, it's the, <laughs> it's the Munster How version. How did you not know that? Yeah, well, there, there we go. Uh, <laughs> we found the gap in his knowledge, yes. <laughs> Finally. So, translations. <laughs> so, I guess one of the interesting, obviously here we are in Kildare, and there's a Kildara, is that an Irish, but there's sometimes debates as to place names with a kill in them, whether mm. it's kill for a church or kill for a wood. Yeah, and you can normally unpick that uh, because if it's got a name, mm -hmm. uh, like for example Dara or, mm -hmm. or uh, Kilkenig, uh, St. Canis, mm -hmm. uh, then it would be a church because where, where places have a name, uh, they're either recently named after a landlord or many, many hundreds of years ago named after a saint. Yeah. Uh, but if the name is a tree, like in Killarney or in Kildare, yeah, then it kind of you kind of mm. get this it's idea more, that it's yeah. more likely. And the problem is, people are still making this mistake because I, like I said, I'm from West Dublin, and along the Lewis, as you head in from Clondalkin, and from the famous Red Cow, you come to Kylemore, or on 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 Hill War, the big wood. Except on the Lewis stop, it's on Hill War, the mm. big church. It's like, oh, lads, I thought we which, were done with this <laughs> spreading Christian influence, you know? Mm. I thought we were finally moving separate, beyond the... Separate Lewis and State. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so Kill, Quill, one of the many things, like, there's just so many little mistranslations. I remember talking to um, somebody about an article, actually, recently in the Connacht Tribune in Galway. Somebody who has a track record of not liking Irish very much on road signs wrote an article about how... Um, people can't find Clare Galway because all the signposts say Balliachlor because Clare Galway is in the Gweltacht area so all the signs for it are in Irish. I'm just reading this thinking but if all the signposts say Balliachlor why don't you tell people to look out for a signpost that says Balliachlor <laughs> because if they're looking for a signpost that says Clare Galway they're, they're not going to find it and you, you know the, 
the, uh, the debate went on for that. Somebody was telling me, like, well, really, what's really difficult is other places. Like, there's two places in Mayo, Mulrani and Brafie. And there's, like, there's two ways to spell Mulrani and there's four ways to spell Brafie. I just sort of sitting there going, like, yeah, except, like, in Irish, it's, it's kind of clear. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, originally there was only one name for these places, yeah. you know? And it yeah. wasn't us that changed it. <laughs> I love that about the Gaelic. When you, as soon as you go into a Gaelic area, all the names are in Irish. I just... I know I'm probably in the very much minority, but I just love it. I'm like, yeah, this is what the people called the place because this is what it meant to them. And when you translate it into something else, it becomes meaningless and you start to lose that sense of belonging, that sense of place. And we all know how obsessed we are with our own land. I think it feeds into that. If you meet a farmer, you start talking about what's that field called? And they'll always have a name for every single field and every single wall. And that used to belong to this person. And that belongs to this person. And don't ask about that because you know what happened there. You know, there's always a story. And I think that feeds into the whole, you know, identity of an Irish person. That there's always a story with a field or with a stone or with a church or whatever. And, and I think that's what Friel really gets to as well is at the heart of this belonging place, storytelling, who we are. And I think that that hasn't aged either. And, and if you did see a very recent production of it, I think that still really feeds through to the Irish persona. Even though we've changed so much over the last, say, 20, 25 years, we still hold on to this who are we identity. And, and, and do we really have to connect with the land? And when we do, what does that mean? And I love that about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think some, some, one thing that has stayed on with us, and it comes from folklore, is the idea of not touching things that belong to fairies. And, you know, the Disney version of fairies is all very pleasant, but actually the Irish folklore version of fairies is maybe not so pleasant. Um, and they were nasty. Yeah, they were not good. You did not want a fairy coming into your window like Tinkerbell. Well, that's why, like, we used to call them the good, Nadine Maha, the good folk. Yeah. Ironically. Because we were terrified of them. Because we were terrified of them. We're, like, so nice. And you know what's getting, like, really, I was in college with a couple of girls called Shifra, and it's becoming a very, very popular name. Mm. But, like, I don't know, do you know what a Shifra is? A Shifra is a changeling. Where the yeah. fairies steal your baby and put in place a fairy baby. A, a weird creature. A weird creature, yeah. yeah. So, like, there's all these lovely girls, lovely women going around with a gorgeous name, Shifra, and it really means weird shapeshifter. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> Tell your friends. Um, <laughs> Tell your Shifras. Yeah, but I, I friends. think we do have, still have a respect in Ireland that we don't have in other places for the idea of fairy forts or you would yeah. go near that tree or whatever and I still th- I think that's important. There's, there's, there's a wonderful thread running through society that we do that because a lot of these so-called fairy forts and a lot of things that we wouldn't build on for many, many hundreds of years were actually archaeological sites of incredible value. Mm. And the reason they were still so valuable was they had been untouched because people said, that's a fairy fort, you don't build there, yeah. you can't put the road down there, you have to divert it. And it's only very, very recently, the Tara Scrine yeah. cont- controversy that we started as a nation, and the Celtic Tiger did this to us, we just went, archaeology, schmarchaeology, build the roads! <laughs> More roads! Haven't we great roads? Didn't we get the roads right? Because <laughs> a lot of people who would maybe... Who'd would find themselves typically criticizing Danny Healy Ray and we almost by habit would say, ah, now he's, he's right about the fairy forts. <laughs> he's right about the fairy yeah, forts. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that a lot and I actually think he probably is right about the fairy forts. <laughs> I wouldn't go near one. There's an, amazing, there's an amazing podcast by the environmentalist and researcher Sinead Mercier. She went on the Echo Chamber podcast. Mm. Uh, good friends and fans of Mother Folklore. Uh, you did an Echo Chamber podcast. I did indeed. This is really good. Sinead Mercer's is really brilliant and she starts talking about the history of our respect for the land and how we wouldn't touch fairy woods and fairy forts mm. and, and what the meaning of that is and, and again what the legacy of it is so it's absolutely fascinating and I think it, it is it is nice that, we, that we've that we done that it is yeah. good it was a respect for 
what went before us, which also lived on in the names and in the Dean Hanukkahs. And yeah. you know, um, my my wife and my baby boy are here, and my father-in-law would often ask me, he'd come up with a name, and he'd give me a name, and he'd say, that's a field up above yonder, north of the mountain. Uh, what would that mean? And he would give me the anglicised version of an Irish place name, and I'd be like, oh God, well it sounds like, it sounds like Gert, and it sounds like Carrig, and it sounds mm. like uh, Darug, but I'd have to see it written down. And he's like, oh Jesus, nobody's written that down, mm. ever. Like, this just, it's just been passed down from generation to generation. Mm. So there is a terrible fear that I have that we will lose <laughs> an awful lot of place names mm. in the next generation. But I suppose we've lost place names as we went. Tommaso Criffin wrote a brilliant book called Dinchanicus and Elan, where he wrote about every single place name on the Great Blasket Island. Mm. Now, the Great Blasket Island is it's three quarters of a kilometre long. Like, it's, it's mm. a tiny place. And yet every rock, every outcrop, every field, every uh, crag had a name and a history and a reason it was called that. And Didn't Peg call the Blasket this terrible rock or something? <laughs> <laughs> she is a, lot she of people, a lot of people tend to forget that Peg wasn't from the Blasket. I know. She wasn't mm-hmm. even married into the place. Yeah. God love her. Cleveen is chic, poor yeah. woman. Like. <laughs> yeah. She gets a hard deal. As you may have heard, if you're a regular oh, listening to the podcast. We are always on Peg about Peg. gets a hard deal. I'm going to reframe Peg before I die. Peg is going to D- be. Derek reframed Peg beautifully in his book, and he said yes. that, like, uh, the corollary, I'm sorry, like, he won't speak about it himself because he's too modest. But has anybody read Motherfucker or Derek's, Derek's first book? If you haven't, pick it up because there's one chapter yeah. and it's beautiful where he starts talking about how Alanis Morissette <laughs> and Peg got the same hard going. You know, Alanis Morissette, she released that song, Ironic, within which nothing is ironic. <laughs> Absolutely nothing is ironic in that. Which is ironic. It's like it's just slightly <laughs> ironic. Mm-hmm. Meta. <laughs> it's like rain on your wedding day. But I'm sorry, no, unless you're marrying a meteorologist. <laughs> it's not ironic. But she got an awful lot of criticism, whereas around about the same time there were an awful lot of meaningless pop songs coming out with terrible lyrics and rap songs and hip hop songs and rock songs, and they didn't get half as much criticism. Mm-hmm. And was it because she's a woman? Mm-hmm. And was that the same reason Peg got that? Horrible, horrible grilling. Yeah. When many other Tommaso Griffin wasn't much better for giving it. No, he was giving it quite a bit. But like to be fair, Tommaso Griffin wasn't stuck on the syllabus. So no. <laughs> uh, there, but for the grace of God, goes he. The big <laughs> thing for me was when I was in school, and one of the reasons this always stuck with me is people were telling me the peg was so depressing, and their favorite bands were Radiohead and Joy Division. <laughs> <laughs> And also, half of Peg's children died. One of them fell off the side of the blasket and drowned. Like, she had reason to not be in great right. form. And the problem is, she was still in great form. She was not... Yeah, uh, she was just uh, being she, wild crack. She was mad crack. And if you read her other books, that's not Peg. The problem is, Peg... I can't believe we're talking I about know, Peg. We promise I we know. Yeah. We're talking about Peg. Peg I'm sorry, we will refund the full <laughs> price of your tickets, <laughs> minus the one euro booking fee, uh, after the show. I'm so sorry. Um, Peg didn't, wasn't able to write in Irish. She could speak Irish, but because she went to the national school system before the foundation of the state, uh, only English was taught for writing and reading. So Peg was illiterate in Irish. So therefore, when she was dictating her first book, it was her son Mm. who wrote it. And her son was what was known affectionately at the time as a, a manic raving depressive. Um, or he probably had uh, undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Yeah. So this is why we got this idea that like, all the bits that went into Peg's autobiographical book are the terrible bits about the wind and the rain yeah. and how 
Obviously, Hog Groom was so depressing <laughs> on the island. Like, whereas her other books, like An Old Woman Remembers, or you know, Queen yeah. and Nilan, and uh, and the other ones that she wrote are brilliant. There's some stuff in there, but the pranks she used to play on the scholars who would come over for uh, you know to, to go to the Blasters to learn Irish. Yeah, on Robin Flair and them. So yeah, Peg, she got a hard deal, and I'm sorry we're not talking about. Your, place names anymore. Your, your discussion of mentioning that you went to the English language uh, at, um, national school ties us nicely back to translations because the head school well environment. Dad. See, <laughs> I could segue anything. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty Hold good. So the, the fact is that the, he- the hedge school, at the, at the start where you have these um, students discussing uh, Greek mythology and learning languages, including English parts, was something, was a tradition in Ireland that was gradually going to be replaced, partly from the Ordnance Survey, was the uh, introduction of schools. And Something that Declan Clarke has written about in context of this play was that in, in the UK, the surveying of, of Ireland was seen as a ripping success, uh, was seen as wonderful. And they, that, that Never <laughs> not at it. And so <laughs> much so, so, much so really that, well. they, that, uh, that people, in, people in the shires were demanding a map of their own lowlands because the, the maps were useful for planning out for schools and railways and, mm. and those sorts of things. And, one of, and the introduction of the schools often in Ireland, sometimes before parts of England, did accelerate the, um, the advance of, Eng- of the English language. Mm. And you mentioned yeah. the first line of the play, which yeah. is pretty funny. Yeah, the first line of the play is, um, do you play ironic in some ways? We're doing first very line well. Spoke, the, yeah, the first line of spoken dialogue is, we're doing very well. Hedge <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. schools are an amazing, amazing phenomenon because it was... Like ancient Greek and, and Latin were being taught in, you know, in behind, in, in sheds mm. and in, in, in some cases literally in hedges. And yeah. If you go down around Waterford, where my mother's from, in South Waterford, near Balmahan and Balilanin and Kilmacdonis, um, Donna Rua, the famous poet and hedge school headmaster, is still honoured there. And, mm. and they remember the place names and they know where the schools were yeah. and they know which one was the school Shkiacha, where, you know, where that was. And... Yeah, one of the key tools that the invading British Empire used to drive the language out of us was education. Mm-hmm. And by creating a cadre of public servants who were willing to teach us, but not teach us the classics, not teach us ancient Greek, ancient Rome, but teach us reading, writing, and arithmetic, mm-hmm. and then beat us every time we spoke Irish. And I know on the podcast we've spoken about before, the, the Bataskur was uh, every child had to wear a stick, and every time he spoke Irish, he got a notch cut into the mm-hmm. stick. And at the end of the day, you got an equivalent amount of lashes from the cane as the amount of times you spoke Irish. Mm. And that, that idea, even though it was a long, long time ago, still resonates with people. And the idea that people in power don't speak a minority language, they speak the main language, and that's the, business, that's the language of commerce. And why would you bother? And all that. I think that all comes into, into Friedel's plays, uh, even, even more than... It, than just in translation and other plays of his as well. Even in Faith Healer, there's a there's a, a nod to a question of language as well, and mm. these travelling people and you know minorities and actually the power dynamic and what are we here for? Are we here to just make money? Is that what it's all about, or is, are we about something else? And I think that still resonates, and it, it still makes me laugh by people who like say to me like, oh, very middle class, going to a girls' school. And I went like, oh, yeah, I went to a girls' school in a prefab in Dundalk, <laughs> in the biggest council estate in the country, where two people, and I'm not being funny about this, their fathers were murdered in West Belfast in front of them. And I'm like, oh, so middle class. Like, I mean, go on. But it, like, it, it has its, 
I mean, I was only recently looking at something that you shared recently. In 1980, Neil Moerla went out to, to West Clare to talk to the last, um, the last two native speakers of West Clare Irish he could find. And one of them was a woman who was living in a shed with a galvanised roof, with no electricity, no running water and no indoor plumbing. Mm. And she was in her 80s. And she would walk nine miles to the post office to get her pension once a week. Yeah and walk back and she lived off the small few potatoes she was able to grow herself mm. and the kindness of her neighbours. And I'm looking at this, this woman is dirt poor, she's one set of clothes, no electricity, yeah. and she's doing an interview and I thought, privileged, middle class. Yeah, bastards. and to this date, people don't seem to realise, but places in the Donegal Gaelstacht are some of the most disadvantaged in the whole country. Mm. And because, maybe it's because it's, it's far away, it's up in the northwest. It's so mystical and Clonad and Alton are from there and it's musical and poetic. Catholic no, mysticism. Like, it's real, but they don't, they, some people have nothing and they have some of the lowest levels of education as well. And yeah, they can speak Irish as their first language and that's amazing and that's so beautiful and poetic, but like, they need more than that. You yeah. know, they, mm-hmm. you can't survive on the old Irish language you baby see, they, they stubbornly insist on hanging on to the old place names. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. their problem. Nobody can just, get to if them. If they just started calling it Guidor instead Guidor. of Guidor, it would be just much, much better for them. <laughs> All they need to do is just let go of that sort of. Let it go. Then people could finally find them on the signposts. <laughs> They're all up there raving mad on their own because nobody can find them. Because nobody can find them. Yeah, yeah the investment like gravy train can't stop off at Guidor because the signs There's are There's no nice. train stations there. No, no tra- that's true. They haven't oh. been for a long time. Oh. But that's worse. That was worse. Worse than anything the Brits ever did in changing the place names was when the free state happened and we got rid of all the train tracks and all the, we had a functioning tram system yeah. in Dublin and we spent the 60s and the 70s digging them up and then the late 90s and the early 2000s putting them back down mm. yeah it's we, we have to get to the bottom of that because something funny happened there but we're talking about I suppose Donegal there and how kind of remote and sometimes forgotten about parts of Ireland yeah. can be this ties back to the, how I feel, and presumably against the advice of agents and 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 other well wishes, probably could have opened a play like Translations in the West End or yeah. in, on Broadway, but he decided that he didn't want to do a play about about this part of Ireland, about about Irish. He wanted it to be for the people it was about and the people who were being written about in it. And this is uh, this is something that probably was, I'm sure it was it was a commercially it was a commercially bizarre decision. Mm. And but it's very authentic. But very authentic. And, that's what and, and I don't is. think he regrets it. Like it's mm-hmm. it's one of as you say, it's one of his most most produced, most staged plays. It's mm. one of the most staged Irish plays in history. Mm. Because it travels so well. Mm-hmm. Because it travels so well. And because when they with the exception of Broadway and like it's had off Broadway success since. It just wasn't cut out for the big Broadway production. Yeah. People expect glitz and glamour and they got <laughs> they got three hours of look what the Brits done to us. <laughs> People shouting at each other, not understanding yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah. It's like being in the doll every day. Like. <laughs> and there have been there have been productions. So it's, it's still the decision to have the Irish language represented by English is is there. There have been productions where it has been done with either, and there has there's been a tradition, a growing tradition now of having subtitles in theatre. Mm. And I suppose surtitles, isn't it? Or surtitles, surtitles, surtitles yeah. if they're over, yeah. or subtitles yeah. if they're under. Yeah. Just, I, I, just, I like subtitles. I'm sticking with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, surtitles is fine, but uh, it's, um, but some actors like the fact that it that the that having the two languages represented with one language gives an act, allows an actor to use their own phrasing or their own talent to express why it's different. Yeah, I think it's important as well that you look at it that that is one of the choices that Freel made when writing it. That when the Irish speakers and the English speakers would come into contact that we would hear it as the same. Mm. 
but that they wouldn't. And I think there's a, there's a, there is a delightful little nod to what once was mm. in there. That, you know, at one stage, if you'd done a play like this and you'd put it on in front of an Irish audience, at one stage in history, everyone would have understood the Irish and maybe the English would mm. have gone amiss on some people. Yeah. And that, that can be no more. That can no. be no more. There's nobody, there are no monolingual Irish speakers left. There are in this book, because mm. it was set in the 1830s, or in this play, because it was set in the 1830s. Uh, and there are, there are very, very few people who, you know, speak Irish in relative yeah. terms. You know, 40% of the population will say they can speak Irish. So there's lots of people who can. Mm. Uh, as far as those who do daily outside of the education system, well. we are a minority. And, yeah. and Freel is making a little nod to that. And in 1980, we were an even smaller minority. So mm. I'm glad things are getting better. Yeah, but, I think uh, interestingly as well, when it comes to the, the aspect of native speakers, if we went back to the time when the play was set, people in Donegal wouldn't have, understand, pe- wouldn't have understood people in Kerry. People in Kerry wouldn't have understood people in Galway, even though they speak the same language, the dialects had such variants that actually had they come together, they would also be speaking to each other and not understanding each other. And it really wasn't until apparently 1972 when Radio Nagoya came on the air that they started to actually hear each other. Listen, yeah. hear, oh, that's what Donegal people say for our word is, I'll take the word nose. You know, we use shrown. Most people in Leinster probably use shrown. In Donegal, they use gisan. And in Kerry, they use kinkeen. You know, had, had they all sat down together to talk about, I don't know, a nose job, they all, nobody would have understood each other. I love that, that, that there are three different words or four different words yeah. that now people understand because of technology and because of the radio, that that, that would never have happened had yeah, it been and, in 1833. Part of that, in and around 1833, 1833 you're coming to the end of any kind of isolation for the Irish language. Yeah. The, the British Empire was expanding at a rate of knots and was sort of recolonizing a country that they'd had a laissez-faire attitude to up until 1798 or thereabouts. And the, the Gaelge spoken in Donegal and northern, the northern half of the country would have been far closer to Scots Gaelic, okay. far, far closer than it would have been to Kerry Irish. It would have been a completely different language. And it's because the concept of Ireland being one nation was, it wasn't, it wasn't embedded in our psyche at that no, stage. No, we were into like, the Cui getting more yeah, very you much know, so. Where you were from was where you were from. Your and you town had a high land, king your from your area. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. And the idea of a high king of Ireland and this idea of Ireland as one nation can be dated back to a book by Sharon Cachin in the mm. 17th century called Forest Fassa Ereiren. So, like, prior to that point, at least in the late 1600s, people from Donegal would have felt much, much more comfortable talking to people from the Mullock and Tyre. Mm. And because Ireland was a very heavily forested nation that was difficult to walk through because there were bandits everywhere, this was the Badlands. You've heard the phrase beyond the pale. Mm. Well, it actually meant something like, you know, you were taking your life into your own hands traveling anywhere outside of the place that was protected by the Anglo-Norman uh, hegemony. Uh, so it was much easier to get on a boat and go to Scotland to do your trade mm. than it was to try and walk down to Galway or to to Cork. Mm. So yeah, they just didn't come into contact with these people. So mm. the idea of, we had this idea of the Gael as a tribe, as almost a race of people, mm. but it was Scotland, it was Ireland, it was, uh, it was the Isle of Man. Yeah, Manx, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and funnily enough, you can, you, can, you can still see these, these little dialects. There are similarities, but they've, they've just sort of become further subdivided now. True. And we're, we're Belfast Irish is now becoming far more different from Donegal Irish. And yeah, Scots whereas Gaelic they would have maybe been rooted in the same, but now there is a thing as a West Belfast Irish because 
they're not necessarily speaking about the same topics as the people in Gidor. I mm. won't go into what they are talking about, but <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, that's how language but changes. But to say there's a reason we call it jail tip Irish. <laughs> I didn't say that. No. Um, you know, it is an interesting thing that that's how language changes because it's what we're talking about. So the people in West Belfast are not talking about the things that the people in Connemara are talking about, the people in West Kerry are talking <coughs> about. So how could they have the same language? How could it be all the same? Yeah. Because we're not talking about the same things. And, and beautifully, ironically, to twist it right back around through Freel and translations, sometimes when you look at what we have left, these echoes, you look at the English version of a, a place name and you can actually see what the Irish should have sounded like at the mm. time. My favourite place name in the whole world is a little tiny, tiny street in Dublin 8, quite near the River Liffey. It's called Mullinahack. Uh, and Mullinahack, is anybody here under the age of 18? Great, Mullinahack means the mill of shit. Um, and when they were naming it, they, didn't, they decided not to name it shit mills, which I thought would have been just <laughs> glorious. Property prices. Mm. Not a concern at the time. Exquisite but, elegance. Yeah, <laughs> but the exquisite elegance. Mm. Live the shit mill's dream. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> two and three bed mews available to view now in shit mills, Dublin 8. Uh, they named it Mullen a Hack. Now, if we were to pronounce the mill of shit <laughs> in modern Leinster Irish, modern East Leinster Irish like people in Dublin speak, it would be Mullen an Chaka. Mullen an Chaka. Uh, the genitive case of cock. Which is, by the way, why fadas are important. Because a gihakaka means eating cake, but a gihakaka... Something else. <laughs> something else entirely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they call it Mullinahak. And in the play, Friel captures this beautifully. What was it again? Say it again. Mm. I'll attempt to repeat it, and that's what I'll write down. Mm. So Mullinahak means that the CH was very soft. It was almost silent in the once prominent Dublin dialect of Irish. Mm. And instead of Mwillen, it's Mullen. So it gives us this sort of this deeper thing. So it was quite close to Omeath Irish, which was the last Irish being spoken in Louth, mm. which was once called Oriel Irish, which is spoken all around that area. Like Oriel so Park in Dundalk. And Oriel Park in Dundalk. Dundalk. Mother Tain! <laughs> the, um, one of the, because there's, there's some other rentals of play place names. One of my favourites is Pulafuka, which is obviously the the famous water reservoir. There's two of them. Yeah, there's, there's one there's, in the Mourne Mountains and there's yeah. one in Wicklow. Obviously, yeah, Puka is, uh, is what well, we we're not calling a fairy, but she has some sort of a hobgoblin or one of the fairies ghost, in the Irish, Irish yeah. tradition, or a ghost. Mm. Yeah, so the ghost. Yeah, but can't pool, pool comes from pal, which means hole. Yeah. So if you live in Dublin or the Greater Dublin area, all your drinking water comes from the goblin's hole. <laughs> mm. And there's a there was a, a, a there was a place uh, Columns Hole in Clare that Jake uh, um, that Jay or Tolkien visited, and Paul Gollum was it. Yeah, um, Pell Chulam, uh, which Chulam, yeah. he renamed Gollum. Gollum. Although that said, that might be a false etymology because well, it's often said yeah. that like the Smeagol character, the Gollum, comes from the sound he made in his throat mm. as well. well. Tolkien himself would have, would have refuted any. He hated, he really disliked Irish, even though he was an external examiner in Galway, in the University of Galway. And he stayed there a bit. He did but, not know that. But yeah, yeah. but he... Um, didn't like the language, didn't, didn't like the people. He, he kept, yeah, he just said, kept on saying that Welsh was better and... Well, Sure. I mean, look, they would say that. Yeah. But then there's uh, Tom Legee Road in Dublin, and there's a few Tom Legees around. Mm. There's a few Tom Legees around, and in the north there's a Tom Legee. Yeah. And it all comes from the same thing Tom Legee, no, Tom Legee, which means arse to the wind. Mm. Which I just, I want to know the story of how that was named. 
<laughs> I really want to know this. Of course, you you crowdsourced these. You you before yeah. the show, you uh, you were asking people on Twitter. I asked people what their, what some of their favorite kind of place names around Ireland and place name meanings were. And there's uh, so there's a few such as and some people shared with ones like I had like like Pulafuca. And someone said uh, Ballantyr in Dublin is Ballantyr or mm. the free the free town. Yeah, and also you have to bear in mind that also in Dublin is the Liberties, uh, yeah. you know, Nasirshi. So you do get this idea that outside a certain outside a certain level at a certain time, mm-hmm. well, as the pale grew, that 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 got uh, wider. But outside a certain place, outside a certain border, you were free. Yeah. Uh, and when I say free, it means that if you had committed a crime inside the Wall City of Dublin, if you got away as far as Ballantyre, they weren't going to chase you. Because the Gaelic Irish were out there, and they, oh man, you're in the badlands. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah, you're free. Nobody can you're save free. you now. <laughs> See how long you last out there, pal. I've been reminded so there was a person in the north giving out about the Irish language and saying there's no use. And someone said, "Well, look at where you live. You live in Belfast. This comes from an Irish name. Says, no, uh, King Billy's horse is called Bell, and she was very fast." <laughs> I like that. That's just that's just balls out re etymologizing the whole thing. Like, <laughs> and so, and sometimes these things can happen when you when people um, re um, I guess when, when people look at the what the what the re-phoneticized word appears to mean, like mm. I'm from Rath Farnham and so I guess somebody at some point decided it sounded like Farnham in, in Surrey, but it doesn't. And I don't believe there's any connection there. Mm. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe someone from Surrey arrived in Rath Farnham once. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. They must have made a massive impact. <laughs> But there's, uh, there's some others. There was um, Swinford was one. Swinford and Mayo was Bailana Bailana Mucka. Bailana Mucka. That's probably like like Newbridge in a, a case where they actually took the meaning rather than just the sound. Yeah. So, so uh, Bailana Mucka is the mouth of the ford of the pigs, mm. or Swinford Swine Ford. Swine. Yeah. So it was the shallow part of the river where you could cross your pigs to uh, to graze or to butcher them. Or whatever what do pigs do? What do pigs do? What do you do with pigs? <laughs> do they graze? I just eat them. Speaking <laughs> the um, bacon, bacon, baby. One of the differences between the 1904 and the 1926 versions of the, the Deneen Dictionary, one of the things he left out in the second version was he mentions that in the entry for Bonov, which is obviously a little pig, he says in Donegal, these are actually called piggines. Oh, piggines. <laughs> That's just the cutest little <laughs> piggine. Which uh, I guess uh, when the, the first one was written, when I guess Ireland was, like, 1926 was the free state and 1904 yeah. wasn't. So I guess there, was, uh, there were different priorities and whoever was supervising the production. <laughs> But, um, how, how are we doing for time? How do we have time for questions? One okay. of the uh, one of the yeah, before before yeah. you wrap because one of the one of the ones that got back is an amazing story that I looked into last night because Derek did put the call out on Twitter. What's your favourite place name? And one woman said mine is Ardnagapri mm. in, uh, in near Guidor in Donegal. Ardnagapri, which means the height of the sandwiches. Mm. No, and honestly, the the thing is named because in order to bury someone in the local Catholic uh, churchyard, they had to cross this large ridge at this height, at which point they would stop and eat their sandwiches. And we have, we have etymology for this going as far back as the 18th century, the 1700s. It was called Ardnagapri, the hill of the buttered slices of bread. Mm. Uh, and I think that's absolutely fantastic that there's and a sandwich hill. My favourite in Gidora is not so fun, to be honest. It's called Drednagora, and it's the place, the last place that you would see your family leaving to emigrate. And oh. they'd stand and watch them leave and go around the corner at this bridge, and that's the, the, the Bridge of Tears. That kills me every time. Oh, what a great note to finish on. I know, sorry. Yeah, what well, a <laughs> cheerful note to finish on. So, I'm like um, Peg. <laughs> yeah, before we wrap up, I just want to really thank, uh, I thank Sean and everyone else in, 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 in the Qatar Regis Festival for inviting us here. Uh, we've had an amazing time, and it's just delighted to meet you all. And thank you so much. And buy his books. Okay. Motherfucker and Crack Baby, available in all good bookshops nationwide. Right now. 
Thank you. Salam. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.